zoom, 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 say, wow, come, hey. Ladies and gentlemen, we're ready to set the You're session. listening to Respect it, You. Uh, open it up. Uh, say uh, good evening and good afternoon. Uh, hey. Like say, well, welcome in. Come. Welcome in. For this project, we've invited UK creatives, journalists and heritage organisations to nominate an individual who's had a big impact on their creative journeys. The individuals nominated for Respect You are people who have inspired and innovated in their field. People who have demanded change and paved the way for generations to come. Their achievements will be showcased in the Museum of Colour along with portraits by the artists Grace Lee, Erin Say and Naki Nar. The Museum of Colour is a digital museum celebrating 250 years of creative achievement by people of colour. In this audio series, you will hear from the nominees themselves. I was born in 1950 in the Punjab in India, uh, just a few years after that country had become independent and shaken off the imperialist yoke. Uh, so it was quite a momentous occasion and I missed it just by a few years. Ranjit Somdi is a tireless cultural leader and a passionate champion for the arts. His determined enthusiasm has taken him from a commune in Handsworth to the hallowed halls of some of the UK's most powerful institutions. At every stage of that journey, he has continued to fight for the economically and politically disenfranchised. Uh, my father was a senior civil servant, so therefore I uh, went to uh, a missionary school and was taught by Irish Christian brothers. I could recite Shelley at will. I knew the length of the limestone tunnel that ran from under Buxton to the Peak District without ever having been in England. But I didn't know about the Indian freedom movements that were taking place over the last hundred years. And uh, I therefore knew more about the mother country then I knew about my own. When I arrived in England in 1965 at the tender age of 15, it was like coming home. This was what I had been prepared for. And I, I would come here and I would just slip into English society quite naturally. I, I suppose in subsequent years, I found that that wasn't the case, that I would not be accepted for various reasons. But I was fortunate enough to come to live uh, with my surrogate family, English family, who were very liberal. Um, and, and of course, they introduced me to a different kind of Britain, a Britain that was not just simply made up of people in positions of power, but also people who lived at every level of, of English life. Indeed, uh, it was through them that I started to work between school and university at a, a, a Handsworth Adventure Playground, which was a new concept. And this was uh, particularly uh, so because it was located in a very deprived area of the city. We lived in Sutton Coalfield, which is outside the city, and travelled in every day so I could work in this rather poverty-stricken area. And that revealed for me for the first time that there was such a thing as an English working class. It's not something that you think of when you're sitting in the Punjab being taught by the Irish Christian brothers. But it is actually a, a, a revelation when you realize that there are very, very poor people uh, in, the, in the hearts of, of, of the British cities. 
And I think that really got me thinking so that um, when I went to university, uh, I joined various societies that uh, looked at um, uh, the new the new Britain. One of them was called the uh, the International Society, which in fact my surrogate parents, my English parents, as it were, had themselves joined because they were both also graduates from the University of Birmingham. And I, and I suppose while I was at the university, there were several things going on in the rest of the country that, that, were, that were transforming the public mood. Uh, there was a rise of powerlessism. There was a huge swell, groundswell of support for him, but also a groundswell of anti-powerless feelings. And I was very much part of that. Right across the city from the, from the University of Birmingham, was the school at, to which uh, Powell had gone when he was a young boy. And he had, they had invited him to come and speak. So, of course, the university students turned out in force to try and prevent him from doing so. And it was there when I realized that um, the police were there in order to, to protect, <laughs> as it were, the, the, the establishment and uh, trying to keep us out of the school. It was a, a rough time uh, where there was a few clashes with the police. And I think it was a formative experience of my life. Uh, so that, of course, when I left the university with a first class degree in theoretical physics, I set aside a career in, uh, in the sciences to join an urban commune, uh, which was set up by other university graduates from the university, all with very good degrees, to engage in what we called neighborhood politics. We had felt that uh, there had been a real failure in the country of institutional political systems of parliamentary democracy. And therefore, we needed to uh, engage in a different kind of neighborhood politics in which people could feel a sense of uh, the power that they had to change the course of their own lives and to, dis to determine their destiny. So we set up a various a, a number of projects in, in Hansworth, an action center where people could come in and uh, get advice and support, particularly with the benefit system. We set up a law center, advisory centers of all kinds for women and young people, uh, and education centers as well. Uh, a different approach to the usual sort of um, establishment interventions into poor areas. So you studied nuclear physics and then you decided to pursue a completely different career. How did your family feel about that? <laughs> well, don't forget that I was being groomed to follow in my father's footsteps. He became a commissioner of the Punjab in charge of 60 million people. And I had rejected that. Uh, I think my experiences in Britain had uh, uh, formed my thinking when I discovered that there were gross and intolerable areas of poverty uh, within the working classes of, of this country, and that there was a great divide between the rich and the poor, and the notion of a class society had come into my mind, and I could see that that class society existed in India as well, and that the Indian Administrative Service was simply uh, following the, the, in the footsteps of the English predecessors. And I didn't particularly want to go back in, in that position. And, and my, my father was absolutely appalled when he heard about my urban commune. He, he sent my mother and she, to give her her due, slept on a mattress on the floor in this, in this commune for six months trying to understand what I was doing. 
Now, this is the wife of a commissioner of the Punjab, you know, who has a retinue of police um, and, and other orderlies, you know, and, and there I was sitting here in, in one of the poorest areas of the country, working part time together with my other colleagues to raise enough money to keep body and soul together while spending all our time working in the community. And living in the community, by the way, the center, the, the commune was actually in Hansworth. Unlike other professionals who would travel into the cities, big cities, from their nice little suburbia, do their day's work with the poor people and then move back out again. A rather patronizing approach to, to, uh, to a class society. But, you know, years, years later, when I started doing other things, which uh, uh, my father could recognize as having status, then I think his attitude changed. And he, towards the end of his life, he was quite prepared to admit that we had done something substantial uh, in the commune. In 1976, Ranjit founded the Asian Resource Centre in Hansworth to help those communities that the commune struggled to reach. There are now Asian Resource Centres across the UK, but at that time, it was one of a kind. It was not possible in that era to uh, bring in people from different backgrounds into the centre as we wanted to do. So with the best of intentions, we were still not able to reach out to all the people who really did, uh, I think, require uh, assistance at the time. Uh, and so it was it was felt that I should go uh, and set up an, a different centre. And indeed, it was called the Asian Resource Centre, which might attract all the people who we were not able to assist. Within the first week, without any advertising, we had about 400 people a week coming into the centre, speaking different languages, uh, which we could cater for. I worked there for 10 years, uh, again, setting up different facilities uh, with the help of um, friends and colleagues uh, who also felt the same. And we produced a range of projects, um, uh, immigration advice centres, children's clubs, a women's group, and particularly a hostel or a, a, I should say a shelter for women in trouble young women uh, who were escaping the tyranny of, of, of their families or uh, wives who were uh, the, the, the victims of domestic violence. We did that in, in a very discreet way so as not to disturb the, the cultural boundaries of our communities, but to provide assistance to individuals where it was absolutely necessary. Ranjit left the Asian Resource Centre in 1985 and was soon scouted by the Independent Broadcasting Authority. At that time, there was no public selection method. It was a tap on the shoulder. And I think somebody in government had recognised that there was this young man in the middle of Birmingham who was doing something unusual and that perhaps we might want to recruit him into the system. <laughs> there was also, of course, a growing realisation within government that they had to uh, diversify uh, at the top end and they needed people from different points of view different cultures to come in and sit in in that regulatory uh, role i did that for two or three years and then of course uh, the uh, digital revolution was taking place and we were moving from uh, the old style of broadcasting uh, into the into the digital space which meant that the spectrum uh, could accommodate a lot more services, both television and radio services. And uh, I was moved on to the Radio Authority, where we spent the next five or six years licensing all kinds of radio stations. And my particular interest was to get to the 
to the ethnic and community radio stations and give them a voice. For the first time, we had people on air expressing their views, enjoying their, their music, speaking their languages to audiences that were prepared to listen to them. So that was that. And then, of course, uh, parallel to this, uh, I got pulled into the Commission for Racial Equality and landed up as the vice chair to uh, Herman Usley, who was the first black chair of the Commission for Racial Equality. This was perhaps the first commission of, of, uh, in, in the race, in race relations industry that had some teeth. Uh, well, according to some uh, of my, my critical colleagues, uh, it had none. But my point was that these uh, commissions were actually independent of government and could hold governments to account, as indeed we did. We frequently fell out with the Home Secretary at the time, and we had a chairman who was ferociously independent. And, and so, I think, was the rest of the commission. I moved on then into training uh, judges um, through the Ethnic Minority Advisory Committee of the Judicial Studies Board. Judges, magistrates, probation officers, senior police officers, and so on. Under the guise of human awareness training, we delivered what we thought was probably uh, a more uh, around diversity training. And then I moved on into uh, regulating legal education through the Lord Chancellor's Advisory Committee on Legal Education and Conduct. Around about the same time, um, uh, I was also um, um, a chairman of the Refugee Education Training and Employment Forum, which was an attempt to try and get government departments to be more sensitive to the, in, uh, the, the incoming refugees and asylum seekers at that time from Vietnam um, and, and to get them settled in and become useful citizens as quickly as possible, despite all the reaction from the wider public against asylum uh, seekers and refugees that you see even till today. And then came the big thing. Um, after leaving the Radio Authority and having got well-versed in media uh, uh, media regulation, I applied to become a governor of the BBC and was chosen in 1998. And the chairman of the BBC at the time, Christopher Bland, said, Welcome, Ranjit. Uh, you know that you will be governor of the BBC with special responsibility for the English regions. Here I was, uh, somebody of Indian background, who was uh, nicknamed the English governor, which was a delicious irony, I thought. <laughs> but I, when, I, when I spoke to, to the chairman about it, he said, you know, it's best that you, you should be the English governor because we can't, ex can't choose any one particular Englishman to be a governor who could represent all different parts of England, so I, I could I could I get that um, uh, got the, that strange logic. Well, of course, don't forget that when my father found that I had become a governor of the BBC and had collected a CBE along the way, he he was over the moon because he understood the word governor and he understood the words commander of the British Empire. <laughs> I think at that point, he rather radically changed his opinion about what I had done in the past. So his son made good, essentially. Made you, good. Made good. Yeah. Although, you, made, you made good. Even though I felt that uh, becoming good in that respect was a bit dubious, he did not. He thought that was just wonderful. 
After serving two terms as governor, Ranjit left the BBC and moved into the NHS, serving as the chairman of the Birmingham Primary Care Trust. And of course, he still lives in the area he works. Anyway, here I am uh, towards the end of my life, now engaged in probably the most difficult journey that I've ever undertaken. And not the journey from India to England or the journey from uh, you know, a rich area to a poor area, but the journey that is the most challenging of all, and that is from the visual world to, to, the, to the non-visual world. And that is a real challenge because I was registered blind about 10 years ago. And since then, I've had to cope with redefining my whole identity. Uh, identity, of course, depends on one's senses. And if you take away the senses, you have to then revise your entire view of the world, oh, if you can use the word view. Um, and you have to start uh, thinking about yourself uh, in, in a very different way. And it's actually a real test of one's, <laughs> one's character as to how you, you cope with it. I mean, it really has been a difficult journey. And to some extent, uh, sitting on the on the board of trustees of the guide dogs for the blind has taught me uh, so much about how one copes with uh, uh, loss of vision and how one needs to regain uh, the uh, uh, desire to be independent and to uh, live as as fully as 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 before. Alongside his advocacy for the visually impaired, Ranjit has a passion for the arts and is chair of the South Asian arts organisation, Sampad, which is based at the Midlands Arts Centre. Sampad offers music and dance classes and leads the way in creating intercultural dialogue through its performances. Art has a very important role in the world of disability, not just simply vision loss, but all kinds of disability mental and physical conditions where art can make a supreme difference. In fact, art can come to the rescue in in some conditions. Certainly for me, sound has become very important, but also things like audio description. I go to the Royal Shakespeare Company to look at Othello uh, while having some headphones, which are giving me a a running commentary on what's going on between dialogues. Uh, It's enjoying a play in a very different way through word pictures as opposed to visual ones. And art needs to be sensitive to that. How can it maximize its impact for people who may be missing one or other sense? Uh, We all know how much art, uh, what art means to people with dementia and how storytelling, music, dance, movement can be used in hospital environments, in care homes, in the home itself, where people are bound by illness. And I think that, you know, exploring the world of disability and the arts is a major challenge for us. And I think we are actually determined now at Sampad and in other places to really make a fist of that and and to to produce something remarkable. And and we've done it. We've done it with women who are suffering from mental health issues. We've done it with elderly people suffering from dementia. We have uh, looked at movement classes for people with learning disabilities. And you can carry on like this, you know, uh, it's a great list. And, and let's, let's hope it, it continues. 
I'm probably the only blind portrait painter in the country, I suspect. I started off in India doing portrait painting, not painting, sorry, sketching. I just use graphite and pencil, lead, graphite, pencil, and then I just use my thumb and four fingers and I and I rub them around and 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 get the impact effect that I need. While I was in India, I also got interested in classical music, and 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 I learned how to play the tablas in India, and I've subsequently, years later, picked it up again in Birmingham. Um, but um, yes, Indian classical music has always intrigued me uh, because I find the construction of Indian music absolutely, uh, absolutely fascinating, and and that's part of the reason why I got attracted to to Sampad, which is, uh, as you know, an arts and heritage organization that is uh, built around South Asian music and dance traditions. Uh, but it's gone much beyond those traditions, of course. It now sees those traditions within the context of a much wider and a more diverse cultural, uh, cultural field. Bringing together different traditions uh, can be tremendously life-enhancing because I think there's a tremendous amount of innovation that takes place at the boundary. So when you bring together, for instance, Bhangra with um, flamenco, or you bring together Bharatnatyam with ballet, or you bring together uh, Indian classical sitar music with uh, English classical violin, for instance, Ravi Shankar and Yehudi Menuhin. You know, very much early on in my life, I was... Uh, a privilege to go to a concert and the two people on the stage were Ravi Shankar, young Ravi Shankar and a young Yehudi Menuhin playing the same music with each other on stage, just learning from each other as they went along. It was electric. It was the first example, I thought, of intercultural uh, productions that I had seen. But if you deliberately create a space where you can have a cultural exchange, um, sometimes dangerous conversations in in those intercultural spaces that's where you produce your your uh, your energy and your uh, uh, creativity so you've done so many amazing things what do you think is the thread that runs through them all well the thread <laughs> personally i suppose it's a <laughs> it's a yearning to be loved and respected uh, it's an insatiable desire for knowledge. It's a real compassion and pity for the poor and poverty-stricken. And it's a burning desire to have a just and fair society for all. Those are the kind of threads, I suppose. Those are the guiding principles that have shaped my life in some respects. But together, I think they have uh, led me to where I am, from where I was. Could it be we've come right to the end? So soon. The end. The end. The end. The end, y'all. But yeah, we're shutting it down. We're shutting it down. Ranjit was nominated by Sampad. You can find out more about the organisation by visiting www.sampad.org.uk. Respect You is presented by me, Sam Amar Session, and is produced by Stella Sabin for the Museum of Colour. You can find out more at www.museumofcolour.org.uk. 
Music you have heard in this series is from Soweto Kinch's prize-winning album, Conversations with the Unseen. Further episodes of this series are available across all podcast platforms. Respect You is supported by the National Lottery Heritage Fund and the Paul Hamlin Foundation. Thank you for listening.